This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 380, January the 6th, 1997. This evening, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushdoony, and I are privileged in that we have with us Brian Abshire, who has been telling us about his uh, experiences, his pilgrimage to the faith, and his experiences as a Christian. Well, uh, Brian, you were in uh, England. They led you on, even though they knew at the beginning what your uh, dissertation was going to be about. So they said it was unacceptable, and you decided to leave. So take up the story from there. Well, if you're interested, yeah, I'd yes, like, very much. This is in 1984, 1985, around that time period. I found myself without a job, without a doctorate, which I hoped was supposed to be the magic ticket to open all sorts of doors, with a theological education that had been um, less than useless, for I had learned nothing about what I had wanted to do, which was how to help people change lives. And you were out $12,000. And I was out $12,000. living expenses. Plus living expenses. A friend of mine who had been a senior master sergeant in the Air Force, his name is Dave Ains, and I will say his name because I have nothing but good things to say about it. When he retired, he said, what can I give? I'm a young man. I'm 44 years old. I've, you know, I've got half salary for the rest of my life in the Air Force. How can I use my time for the glory of God? And what he did is at the bases where we had both been stationed at when I'd been on active duty in England, at, uh, he had opened his home up and started inviting young men into his house on a Friday evening, and he would share with them. And he didn't have a Bible college background, didn't have a seminary degree, uh, and sometimes his theology showed it, but he had one thing that was absolutely uh, you could not stand against, and that is he was sold out to Christ. Who he was and what he was, uh, was all Christ. His home was Christ, his car was Christ, his clothes were Christ, everything, and he wanted to be obedient. And what he did is he sort of adopted a lot of these young men who were like myself, children of the 60s, people with dysfunctional family backgrounds, people who had, who had uh, no idea of what it meant to live self-governed. And though I would call it theonomic today, we didn't have the word back then, he would go to the Word of God and he would search for principles about how Christians should live their lives and then he would help these young men build those principles into their lives. And it meant having people stay in his house, and he had always had somebody staying there. It meant uh, teaching when he could. It meant spending long times on work projects together, working together, and he would help you to work these principles in your life. While Dave's ministry had grown out of his home, he bought a big, huge English manor house out of his own money. He sold his house in Florida in order to finance it. And uh, he had been working and doing these things, and he needed someone to come alongside. And he said, Brian, uh, you're here. You're in the same country. Uh, I've been doing this by the seat of my pants for five or six years now. I need someone to come along and develop a curriculum that we can use to train these guys. Now, rather than just being three or four guys hanging around his house and eating his food and using his car, there was now 50 or 60 guys that were hanging around and, and doing these things. And so there was no money to pay me a salary because that was kind of the thing that Dave was doing. I'm kind of paying for myself, but another Christian said, well, I've got a house that you can live in if you want to, and why don't you live in this house, and um, I can't pay you a salary, but at least you've got work to do. So what I did for the next two years was, I think, probably every pastor's dream. 
and it was a wonderful job. I would go to the office in the morning, and I had an old beat-up CPM computer. It was a word processor. And I would open my Bible and turn on my computer, and I would study the Word of God. What does a new Christian need to know about this? How does a person who knows nothing about Christianity live this Christian life? It drove me back to the Scriptures every single day. And I, and I don't mean to sound arrogant or anything like that, but I, I didn't know the right books to read. I didn't know the great scholars, the great theologians. All I knew is that the Scriptures were the answer, and I went back, and slowly but surely, there was my real theological education. I would take the things that I had studied in the morning, and I would teach them to young guys in the evening. And then I would invite them, and they would stay in my house. Uh, and I would help them to work through their problems, whether they be personal problems or problems with their bosses or problems in relationships or feelings and depression, and help to build these things in. Meantime, I had this huge corpus of academic material in the background that I, that I had, and I also had a, boxes of books by R.J. Rushdooney and other people that I brought with me as a part of my plan three or four years ago. And then, for my own relaxation, I began reading Rushdooney, and specifically, and Incidents of Biblical Law, and that was when the penny began to drop for me. Now, it got to be very embarrassing. I was an ordained Baptist minister. Hallelujah. Soul-winning, alcohol-giving Baptist minister. And my, uh, my guys, my students, would come, and they'd spend about two years with me, which is the average length of tour, and they would hear, we would go through, we'd teach them theology and church history, and we would teach them uh, the Christian basis of government, we teach them all these things. We didn't use words like uh, theonomy and reconstructionism because we didn't really understand those things so well. We taught them that Christ was to be Lord of every area of life. Then we'd send these guys back to the States because it was time for them to go home. And they would write me letters, and the letters were most disturbing. They'd start off almost universally saying, Brian, I found this wonderful church. And the guy there preaches just like you preach. But they were Presbyterian churches. They were Reformed churches. They were Reconstructionist churches. And I didn't realize at the time, but God was working. And it's very embarrassing when you're a Baptist minister and your ministry is associated with a local Baptist church to have all of your students running off to America and becoming Presbyterians. The only kind of Presbyterians I knew were the, were the liberal kind, the kind that ordained women and did weird things. But what I didn't realize is that I'd been teaching my 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 kids, the Reformed faith. And I didn't get the Reformed faith because, you know, uh, R.C. Sproul had taught it or because I had read a great Presbyterian or even because I'd read Calvin, but simply because I had read the Scriptures and the Scriptures had transformed my understanding. And so with the time that I had spent in England, I spent a total of about seven years there, uh, two at the university and five working with this particular ministry, uh, doing more and more work. By the time I knew that, I, I had completely undergone a transformation. And I now had a consistent biblical worldview. I now had an understanding of how biblical law fit together. I had the terminology to fit with the theology. And I had the biblical basis for it as well. And I'm very pleased that God did it that way because I know now that what I stand for, what I teach, the ideas that I support and write about are not just because a great man said them. And so therefore, because R.J. Rushduni is my hero, I'm going to present his teaching. But I know they're true because I know the scriptures. The scriptures back up what he says. And that is a great, powerful, motivating force. A man can stand against anything if he knows it's got God's word. Other questions? Or I'll bore you all evening, guys. Let's talk a little bit about your present um, ministry. Not necessarily the present church, Brian, but maybe the last few years. And then maybe let's talk about uh, the future. And you've written a number of things about Christian Reconstruction and the Chalcedon Report, 
So maybe talk about uh, what some things you've been doing and thinking about lately. I know one thing you're going to do is to bring Dr. Rastuni to uh, your present church and do a, a particular series, and I won't say more. I'll let you say that. And then maybe we can talk about the future of, of Christian Reconstruction. Well, uh, um, rather than give you a long, another long, boring story of how I actually myself came to be from a Baptist or Presbyterian, because it also includes a disastrous experience with a church, instead let me say this about my present church. I pastor Lakeside Church in Whitefish Bay, which is a suburb, northern suburb of, uh, of Greater Milwaukee. And I have the best church that I've ever pastored, I've ever known about. Now, I know there might be pastors out there who think their churches are good, but I have a wonderful group of people, fully committed to the Reformed faith, supportive of one another, encouraging. They outdo one another in acts of love and charity. They are committed to understanding God's law and working into their own lives. Some of them would call themselves Reconstructionists, and very proudly so. A few of our people don't even know what the word Reconstructionist means, but they're all committed to the aspect that Jesus Christ is to be Lord. And this church is, its there. I think it's very hard to find them. It's very rare and that the people not only love God, but they love one another. And it works. We're, uh, hopefully we're developing a model of how biblical Christianity can work in a church environment. Um, our women are very supportive. They, are, they encourage their husbands. Um, some of these ladies, I, I can say this, they are brilliant. Uh, we just had a gal graduate, as a matter of fact, uh, just before Christmas from uh, a very prestigious university in Milwaukee. She's married. I've been married for about a year and a half and she was finishing up her master's degree in some arcane aspect of, of computer programming. I mean, that's something that only a few people do. She graduated with outstanding honors, and the first thing she said is, now I'm through with this nonsense, I can start my real work, which is having a family. Here's a woman who has who is the best of academia. I mean, she is a brilliant girl, but she understands that her primary responsibility is to her, to her, uh, her husband and to the family that she wants to raise. Um, another out of our ladies is uh, is a grandmother, a very very young grandmother. She's a real sweetheart. Um, now that her own children are grown up, she has gone back to work in the public school system. Shop horrors. Well, the reason why is because she wants to make sure that her grandchildren don't have to go to a public school. They can afford tuition of a Christian school. So she doesn't mind taking Caesar's nickel as long as Caesar's nickel can go to making sure her kids get a Christian education. Uh, these are the kind of women that we have. Under under the PCA, which I'm a uh, pastor of the PCA, um, anyone who is a member of the church, uh, if you are made it, you are a voting member. But most of our women say we're not comfortable with that. Our husband is our federal represent, re representative, and so they've asked if it would be okay if they didn't vote in church business meetings and church elections, because not because that, that they're rebellious, the contrary, because they think that's their husband's job to do it. Let me get it straight. The women requested this, not the their husbands. The women requested it. And the reason, Andrew, why the women requested it is because from the pulpit and from our men's Bible study, there is a clear, unambiguous message. Gentlemen, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And the husbands are dedicated to serving their wives by being the men that God demands them to be. They conduct daily family worship. They meet together for Bible study on Sunday evening, and then they take that back and teach their wives. They catechize and instruct their children. We don't keep them so busy running at 50,000 different projects that they have no time to be available. They want to love their wives, and because they do love their wives, their wives are happy 
and they are respectful and they are secure that they can trust their husbands. And I think that is a winning combination. When men love their wives as Christ loved the church, their wives will respect their husbands. And I think that's the, the, the thing that we've missed. They and are remarkable men. I've met with them and I know their caliber. Brian has done a great work there in that church. Well, I take no credit for it because these, these are good guys. So, uh, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. You're going to say something. No, continue on with your... Uh, um, and therefore, as a church, Rush Dooney has had such a significant influence on my life. And that one of the things that, in the, as I said right at the beginning of this, it's self-government is the beginning point of Christian Reconstruction. And so, therefore, what we're trying to do is to teach our men to be self-governed and then to govern their families. There are some churches which really amaze me, and I, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I don't mean this in any way to be flippant. I mean, they impress me. The things that they do for the kingdom. Um, Rush has been showing me some of the things that some Reconstruction churches are doing. It is exciting, and I'm impressed by it. Uh, the programs and the policies they do. Well, Lakeside Church is put in a kind of a unique situation. We are right smack dab in the center of the most affluent uh, Jewish community in the entire city. I mean, we get along very well with our Jewish neighbors, but of course they're not interested at all in Christianity. And because it's an affluent, upper white, middle class community, a lot of the social needs which Reconstructionists have been doing, uh, helping the, the needy and the charitable works, isn't really appropriate in our community. And because we don't have our own building, because we're still a fairly young church, um, we have, it's very hard to find administrative centers and to do a lot of very fancy programs. So instead what we've done is that we've put the responsibility back on the family. Instead of the church creating a bureaucracy and then trying to take over the ministry and then fit people into its programs, instead we have commissioned and challenged each family household to find an area of ministry and to follow through on it. The session is there, the elders are there, the deacons are there to help, to encourage, to advise, but the responsibility is on the families. So what's happening is that these families, and we have some very activist people who, um, during the pro-life movement a few years ago, they were they were very, very much involved in the pro-life movement in Milwaukee and, and helped to see a lot of clinics closed down. Um, they're very activist-oriented. What they do is they'll take a project on, and then if they think God is going to bless this project and he wants them to work on it, they will recruit one or two other households. It's not then just a committee that's doing this, or it's not just the man doing it, but it's the entire family that takes on the project. For example, if one of the projects happens to be picketing a local abortionist, it isn't just the husband who goes out or the wife who goes out, but the whole family will go out and picket the local abortionist. I think I made a comment in, a, in an article for the report about one, uh, one such man, a very godly man, has two sons who are grown up. They're all in the same church because they want to worship together in the same church. Uh, the only time, though, they're all very busy. The, the, this one son has a Ph.D. in some aspect of artificial intelligence. The other one is, a, is an engineer, and uh, the father is a very successful businessman, very much in demand. The only quality time they can get is on Sunday morning before worship service, and our worship service is at 9.30. So they have to get up very early in the morning if they're going to get any time together. But they weren't satisfied just sitting around drinking coffee or having breakfast. They decided that they needed to do something for the kingdom. So it just so happens that a mile or so from where the father lives, there happens to be a local abortionist who is also an elder in the other Presbyterian church. So the father and his two grown-up sons 
get their signs out and march up and down in front of the man's house on a public street and have fellowship and sing songs and pray and catch up on the week while they're protesting and saying to the community, this man is a murderer. And my favorite sign that they carry is it says, real Presbyterians don't kill babies. It drives the man wild. But it's, this is the kind of ministry that I'm talking about, Andrew, where I, I couldn't have planned that. You know, I, I'm not smart enough to coordinate that. But instead, households take on that individual thing, recruit other households, and then we see incrementally, bit by bit, the work of reconstruction going on. So you're implying that the church uh, serves the family and strengthens the family, essentially. Yes, it's very much. Rather than having programs which separate the family, instead we're there to reinforce it. If the family is a child's, this is what Dr. Rushdoony said for years, it is a child's first state, it's his first school, it's his first government, and therefore the church should be supporting it, not undercutting it. Therefore, we bring our children, for example, into the worship service at a very young age, like from the moment that they're born. Okay, Sometimes that means a baby fusses. Wow, what a horrible thing to happen. The mother then will sit at, sitting at the back, and I have to take the baby out of the room. But if a child is able to sit up by itself, the child is sitting in the, in the pew. And if the child is able to read, the child is taking very good notes. Not because we're evil, horrible, nasty, or the pastor yells at people, but because the fathers are doing their jobs, their children are sitting there listening attentively. Now, as a pastor, and I know I've got you know two-year-olds in my audience, I have a responsibility to say something in the sermon that they can relate to, that an illustration, an anecdote, a story, and the kids get a kick out of that. That's part of the, the pastor's job. But you can see on a Sunday morning uh, which families are doing family worship and which families aren't. The families that need some encouragement and some help and for someone to come alongside because the children are quiet and they're reverent and they're learning. And because the church then serves the fathers, the fathers serve the family, the children grow up in the discipline and the nurturement of the Lord. Um, I think this is the way that way that it, more should be done like this. One of my pet peeves is in the modern church is that it seems there's one religion for the children and one religion for the adults. Yes. There's a little junior covenant yeah. and then there's the real adult covenant for the adults. But really, that's a denial, it seems, of, of God's purpose and the Word of God and, and the Reformed faith. Oh, I, exactly. And I have actually served in churches, and, and here's a war story. Seriously, a uh, church I served at, a, at before it became a, uh, uh, a Presbyterian, before we had this particular church, I noticed that all the teenagers used to sit up in the balcony of the church. Biggest church I've ever served, very successful. All the teenagers would sit up there. And I would notice that as the, as the service went on, these teenagers would get up one by one and they would wander off. And by the end of the service, there would be no teenagers left up in the balcony. And this, I saw this happening two or three weeks. I'm, I'm pretty slow, but eventually, if you hit me hard enough, I'll catch on to it. So I had one of the deacons say, look, you know, deacon, I need you to check and see where all the teenagers are going during this worship service. I mean, one guy going to the bathroom is one thing, but, you know, the whole youth group? Well, he found out that what they were doing is they were going down during the worship service, especially when the sermon began, and there was a TV and a VCR in the basement of the Fellowship Hall, and they were watching Christian rock videos. I mean, the real crazy, you know, monster rock videos. And I said, guys, you can't do this. But the reason why they did it is that these men who were, when I say teenagers, that's really a bad word. They were really late teenagers. They were 17, 18, 19 years old. They had never sat through a church service. 
From the time they were children, they'd gone to primary praise and children's praise and young adult praise and youth group praise. They had never been taught how to sit, never taught how to think, never taught how to take notes, never taught how to do a sermon. They had, uh, and so consequently for them, church is just something that you have to do. And it's no accident that according to some research studies, 70% of fundamentalists lose their children when they grow up. The, the statistic for evangelicals is a little bit better. It's about 45% lose their kids. But that is still reprehensible because we do not do our covenant obligation. We do not fulfill our covenant obligation to our children. We do not teach the parents how to be parents, the husbands to be fathers and, and to be heads of their households. And instead we separate the children and then we wonder why when they grow up they wander away. We've never given them anything. Let's go on then to talk about... Um, you and I were talking, Brian, I guess it was last night, about Christian Reconstruction and, and the future. A, what are some of the concerns you have about the present? And B, where do you think, what do you think our agenda should be in general? Just make some observations along that line. In terms of, of Christian Reconstruction as a movement, we are at the beginning point, I think. We have had the foundation laid, and it has been laid ably by... Uh, the life-changing work that Dr. Rush Dooney has done. This has made the difference. He has given us the tools. If there is a problem that I think that we face, and a serious problem, is that the men who are being won to faith in Christ and being won to the Christian Reconstructionist movement often come out of the same kind of dysfunctional background that I come out of. We are men who did not learn self-government in the family where we should have. We did not learn how to deal with our tempers or our egos or our petty frustrations. We are unsanctified men. And as a consequence, because Reconstructionism is logical, it is brilliant, it makes sense, it ties the scriptures together, it therefore tends to appeal to the brightest of the men, especially in the Reformed faith. But if these men come from backgrounds such as I had, and they have not learned self-government under God's law, then what happens is that they have, uh, they have the, the look, but they do not have the reality. The greatest challenge for Christian Reconstructionists is to teach our leaders how to be self-governed. So intellectual brilliance is not enough. It also takes strong character exactly. and obedience and self-government. Now the good news, I think, Andrew, is that those of us who have made our mistakes, we are trying to do better with our children. By God's grace, because they have been homeschooled or Christian schooled, they are growing up learning those principles. And if we are faithful as fathers, then in the next generation we're going to see a great army arise. But for the next 20 or 30 years, I think a real challenge for Christian Reconstructionism is to get husbands to love their wives, wives respect their husbands, parents to, to take responsibility for their children. And it may mean, now I'm being radical, this is my opinion, don't let me put anything on anyone else. It may mean that there are some projects that may have to be put on hold right now because we don't have the men to do it. Mm -hmm. And personal opinion, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it is presumptuous of us to push in areas if God has not given us the men to lead in those areas. When God wants us to do something, he will raise up the men to do it. It's our job to be raising those men up and training them. So it's more important to train the right individuals and get them qualified than it is to attack particular projects well, until we I, have men. I'm, I'm, gonna, I, I'm, not, I'm gonna be very careful here because I, uh, I don't wanna be a legalist and I don't wanna put something on someone else. I'm giving now an assessment. This sure, that's rather than rather than you know this is thus saith the Lord you know here says Brian and so you can throw it out if it doesn't work, but I would suggest that this is the real challenge for us is to raise up those men. The real challenge for us for a lot of us is going to be 
to take Russia's works, the brilliance, the, the consistency, and to break it down into smaller and smaller pieces so that they are digestible by more and more people. Um, what he has done for us is given us the tools for reformation. Now we have to teach people how to use those tools to bring about reconstruction. We've seen, uh, Brian and I were discussing this, in this century a marked decline in the caliber of education and discipline that children are receiving so that there has been a deterioration. We are recruiting on the university level young men and women with a higher order of intelligence than uh, nine out of ten who were recruited, say, up to 1960. But they have grown up uh, products of the 60s without discipline. And uh, the best rifle in the world is no good if the sights uh, are not properly aligned. And it's the discipline uh, that has been lacking in the generation that has come up since 1960. And this the Christian schools, I believe, are beginning to provide and the home schools. Now, one of the problems here, as Mark has on other occasions mentioned, is that uh, the Christian schools are giving the discipline. The parents are resisting even more than the children because it horrifies them that you should uh, put a child under discipline, that you should make demands of him. It should be a kind of free-flowing free stream of inspiration, not a discipline. Yes, that is indeed a problem. Brian, do you think, uh, as we look to the future, that there's a particular agenda, uh, things, I mean, aside from what you just said, the necessity of training godly, confident uh, men, uh, where, where Christian reconstructionists need to be going in particular topics or particular um, uh, areas that need to be addressed besides the specific preparation of, of those men? <clears throat> well, there are the task of reconstruction is so enormous, the need is so great, and we are only at the very first stages. As you said on the uh, tape that you've done, the, uh, the videotape, the goal of Christian reconstruction is to reform every area or reconstruct every area and submit it to Christ. And so the work is, is enormous. There's as many needs as there are Christians that God has given gifts to. And uh, I, I'm not sure if I can paint a, a broad enough picture uh, to be able to give a helpful insight in that area. Um, in some respects, I, I can fall back and saying, I'm just a pastor, so I have this little area to focus on, and uh, let me focus on that. There are other men who have other insights or other goals and things, and that's the nice thing about the Reformed Doctrine of Calling. I don't have to criticize somebody else because they don't have my calling, and they don't have to criticize me. We can encourage each other, and that as men work at their individual callings, things go on. There are some exciting things to be done, though. We need, as a movement, to recruit leaders, and that's going to be a crucial aspect of it. I think, personally, uh, uh, we need to recruit more and more pastors. Um, in order to do that, pastors, most of them are too busy. They won't read books. 
we're going to have to provide them those bite-sized chunks we talked about earlier. Um, we need to provide them with short, easy introductions to the major ideas. Somebody, the vice president of Zambia, was given by Peter Hammond a copy of Institutes of Biblical Law. Zambia is in the process of reconstructing their entire nation because, because the president, vice president, and the, uh, their assembly are all Christians. But they don't know how to do it. They don't understand. They don't have the theology. So Peter gave him a copy of Institutes. The vice president, on a desk surrounded with papers, overflowing with reports and letters and requests, looked at the Institutes of Biblical Law, and Peter said he almost cried. He says, I know the answer may be in here, but where? I don't have time to look for it. Can't you write me a 15-minute, I mean, a 15-page summary of what I should do as a Christian, as the vice president, as the leader of the assembly, to deal with education, to deal with the financial situation, to deal with this area? And I think that's a real task that we have to do, is that uh, Chalcedon has provided a tremendous intellectual capital and needs to continue doing that, and we have good men to do it but also needs to go to this next step of trying to make it applicable. Uh, Brian, you mentioned Peter Hammond. And, of course, the readers of the Chalcedon Report are familiar with his name because his articles are there regularly. But uh, you know Peter uh, firsthand because you worked with him in South Africa. So introduce Peter to our listeners. Peter Hammond is probably one of the most interesting, committed uh, Christians in the world today in many respects. This, I think uh, you were the first one who made this comparison, Russian. and it's a very valid one. If uh, Christian missionaries were as well known in this century as Livingston and such men were known in the last century, every American would know Peter Hammond's name. He has gone places and done things that no one else has done. He is truly phenomenal. Uh, he started off, uh, became a Christian while he was in the uh, South African Army, uh, basically single-handedly started a reformation and a revival in the South African Army while he was fighting the Cubans and the Marxists. Peter uh, had begun life growing up in uh, Rhodesia, when the communists took over, they drove him and his family out. They moved to southwest Africa. When the ANC took control, they was driven out. And he has no love for communists. He has seen firsthand what Marxism does to a nation and to a people. When he was in the army, he uh, they were fighting in Angola, uh, fighting against the communists and uh, against the Cubans. And he said that one day they were coming through a village, and he noticed that in these villages, the one place that would be burned down in the village would be the church. And in the back, there would be fresh earth, and there were graves, and those were the pastors had been shot and buried. When the communists took over a village, the first thing they did is targeted the leadership of the church. And he had come to faith in Christ, and he was witnessing and to his buddies around, but he got a real burden for the black church who was, being suffer who was suffering and being persecuted for their faith. When he got out of the service, he said, what can I do? And he had no money. He had a motorbike. And uh, uh, he got a few medical supplies together. He drove across Africa, across enemy lines, dodged border guards to take a few Bibles and a few medical supplies to a village he knew of where they were being persecuted. And his ministry has grown since then. He has been arrested. He's been imprisoned. He's been tortured. He's been beaten. Uh, he has been. He has a death 
uh, sentence on him in several countries. If they find him, they will shoot him. But Peter keeps going back because Christ's church is suffering. Now, Peter's experience in one way, he's my hero. When I grow up, I want to be just like Peter, even though he's five years younger than I am, but he's my hero. Um, in one way, and in only one way, his, ex- his life experience is similar to mine. He was given the gospel, it transformed his life, but he knew there was something missing. And as he started doing more Bible study and reading a few more books, eventually Peter came to Christian Reconstructionist convictions because he saw that the law of God had the answers. It wasn't enough just to fight against evil, but you had to have a positive contribution to make, and that's what biblical law did. I uh, met Peter uh, five years ago um, before the uh, Marxist takeover of South Africa. He was coming to the States on a small speaking trip, and he was at a pro-life rally, and he was sharing about what it was like in, the so- in South Africa, in an army where every morning all the troops got up and uh, said a prayer before they began their calisthenics, where uh, the drill sergeant would assign you to a church. And if you didn't want to go to any church, if you were an atheist, there were no atheists in the South African army, they would, the sergeant would assign you to the Pentecostal church because they had three-hour services. I mean, it was a <laughs> different kind of thing. Um, South Africa had no pornography, or they had it, but it was hidden. Uh, sodomites were not public. Uh, there was no such thing as abortion. This was, in many respects, a Christianized country. Now, there were weaknesses in South Africa. There were sins, and there were failures and that kind of thing. But uh, he struggled to bring, not only to bring the gospel and to bring assistance to the suffering church, but to take a firm stand in South Africa against Marxism and humanism and pornography and abortion and those kinds of issues. And he is one man, but by God's grace, he's raised up a multitude um, of people, black and white, to resist uh, what the Marxists are trying to do. He has been uh, interviewed by President Mandela. President Mandela has basically offered him a bribe if he would just shut up and stop causing problems. Peter done bribe. Peter's been out there on the front line. He's, he's not going to now tow to Caesar in any form. And he said, no, I will continue preaching the gospel. We are very concerned for Peter in many respects because uh, there is a price in his head. But Peter told me this story when I was saying, Peter, we got to get you out of here. They're going to get you, you know. And he told a story from the Romanian church. It's that it wasn't the Christians who were quiet um, that were safe. The Christians who spoke up, who made a voice, who were brave, the authorities were afraid to arrest them because the outside world would hold, would know about them. It was the ones who compromised. It was the ones who wouldn't take a stand. It was the ones who were a little bit of an irritation that were in most danger. So Peter will go anywhere and he will do anything. Uh, I had a privilege, just uh, was privileged just before the elections to go over twice to South Africa to spend some time with him and to encourage him. Um, he asked for Christians to come and help. His one main thing, he doesn't ask for our money. Peter's never asked Americans for money. He has asked for good Christian books because that's what he needs. The books he has, he can put into people's hands that can change nations. But the real thing that he wants from America is for us to send him workers, people who can share the vision, people who are, who are willing to go and take medical supplies to a village that no one else can get to, who's willing to build a clinic in Sudan. Uh, Lakeside Church, through one of our representatives, managed to put together a whole container load of building materials. There's a, there is a place in Sudan that has no, there's no uh, hospital for thousands of square miles. But there is a clinic that was once there which the Muslims blew up. 
we have the materials now to rebuild that entire clinic. People all over the country have given us medicines, uh, carpeting, they've given us uh, tools. It's all put in a container. The U.S. government actually flew it to us for free to Kenya, but we need men. Peter needs a man to actually build the clinic. If I may interject something, I'm going to ask everyone who hears this tape to start remembering Peter Hammond in your prayers. Pray for his safety. Pray that he succeed in the causes he's undertaking. He's the one man who's blown the whistle on the fact that not only are the women and children of black Sudanese Christians sold into slavery, but the men are being crucified, literally crucified. And Peter Hammond is the one who's blown the whistle on that. So please remember Peter Hammond in your prayers. Brian, though it's been published in the report, would you relate to us again this fascinating story of when Peter went into Zambia before it was a Christian nation and uh, his uh, suffering there, but how that turned out to the glory of God. And I don't want to say any more to spoil the effect. Will you? Um, Peter and his brother were ministering in Zambia when it was still a Marxist nation. When Zambia was under control of Marxism, it was the center for training guerrilla operatives all over the world. The red Chinese were there, the North Koreans were there. Um, I mean, the uniforms of various hardline communist states, you know, Albania, they all sent their troops there for for terrorist training and to train other terrorism. Peter didn't stop him. These Marxists, whom he he hates Marxism, but he's going to preach the gospel to them. And so they went in and they were they were captured and uh, for whatever thing they were put into Lusaka prison. And this is a hellhole. I mean, and I don't use that word lightly, but I literally it was a hellhole. Fifty men put in a small room with a with a tiny grate in the door with the only ventilation, a bucket in the corner that was the only kind of of uh, toilet or sanitary facilities, no water at all. Uh, meals were uh, basically they, the government wanted to starve the prisoners to death. Um, Peter and his brother they were they were beaten and they were tortured. Why are you here? Your CIA, your South African Defense Forces, your spies. You know we're going to shoot you. And eventually they just threw them in. And once you're thrown into these cells, you're basically left forever. Peter and his brother, like the Apostle Peter, when thrown into prison, they didn't get despondent, they didn't get depressed, they hugged each other and said, it is a privilege to suffer for Christ. And so as they prayed together, they started singing. And as they started singing, somebody across the hall in the next cell began singing with them. And they managed to kind of squirm their way over to this tiny little grate, only a few inches in diameter on the wall, and shout across, is there a Christian over there? Yes, yes, we have Christians in here. So Peter and his brother began ministering to these people. They would share Bible verses with them. They would encourage them with sermons and talks that they had prepared. They would help uh, pray for them together. And the whole time that Peter was in there, they developed a close relationship with two men especially who were political prisoners and probably were going to be shot sometimes in the future. But they had been thrown in here to be, to be forgotten. They ministered them, they loved them, they encouraged them. Peter eventually, because of pro-life demonstrators, by the way, in this country, put so much pressure uh, on the South African government and on the uh, Zambian government and their consulates that eventually the Zambian said, we've got to get rid of these guys, they're more trouble than they're worth, who cares, whatever they are, get them out. So Peter, after a few months in prison, was taken out and they were you know, thrown out of the country and said, don't come back or we'll shoot you next time. 
Meanwhile, in God's providence, God took down the communist dictatorship in Zambia. God raised up some men to lead the nation. The two men who became the president and the vice president of Zambia were the same two men that Peter and his brother had ministered to and encouraged and prayed for and taught while they were in prison. Peter said, now I know why God had us arrested and what he wanted us to do. It wasn't some super spiritual, oh, suffering is good for the soul, but there were brothers there who were being prepared to reconstruct a nation. Consequently, Peter has oh, got an open ticket in Zambia. And Peter will not back down when the new president declared amnesty and said, well, Christians don't, don't kill other people, so we're getting rid of the death penalty. Peter and Frontline Fellowship said, no, sir, you are wrong. You're confusing the ministry of justice with the ministry of grace. You must execute prisoners. And they wouldn't listen to him, and they did not like the fact that Peter would openly say they're wrong. And, of course, what happened is that the crime rate in Zambia went through the roof. Uh, because they weren't using biblical principles in that area. But uh, even though, you know, there's sometimes Reformation has come in fits and starts, these men who are running the government are godly men, and Peter has an unprecedented access to put into their hands the materials that they need to change their nation. And the Christian government and the Christian parliament were overwhelmingly re-elected, were they yes. not, uh, not uh, a couple of months ago maybe, or something like November. that? November. Was it November? Yes. Mm -hmm. It was a real danger because uh, obviously after you know 20 years of socialism, the people have forgotten how to be self-governed. Mm -hmm. They want the government to take care of them. And of course what the Christian government is saying is that no, you must be self-governed. You must take responsibility. And like in our country, Christians don't want to hear that. They want to mm -hmm. be taken care of. It takes... It takes a while to teach a man how to be free and to be responsible. But God is working there. We have an opportunity at Chalcedon to minister through Peter. And when Peter was here in our last visit, we were fellowshipping together. And Peter said, well, if we could only get the right information into their hands, we could greatly help them to change. They want to change, they just don't know how. So what we're doing right now is that Peter is getting a list of the 25 top questions that the president and vice president of government have about how to become a Christian nation. When, once I get those questions from Peter, you, Andrew, have volunteered to help me find 25 godly Christian Reconstructionist thinkers because we have some of the best minds in the world. That we, if they're not necessarily working with us, they're in the same side in the same camp. We have an unprecedented opportunity to help them change their whole government system. And Kelsey's already sent me those 25 questions as soon as they arrive. Yes, sir. And Calcedon's already well, sent a number of books. We're expecting to answer the first 12. So. <laughs> and Calcedon's already sent a number of books to Peter, and he's yeah, distributed yes. them widely to, to uh, political leaders and educators and people in the police there in uh, Zambia and others, I believe. Yes, well. exactly. And uh, Calcedon's ministry has been a wonderful one. That's what they need were books. The only kind of books they were getting were the sappy, spiritual, pietistic, oh, I'm so happy, here's the reason why Jesus took my burdens all the way. Chalcedon has been uh, giving them the kind of books that they need to change lives. Colonel Donor, who was here last week, uh, reported on Monty Wilson's yes. visit there, which we financed in part, and Monty is going to write sometime an article about his meeting with the leadership of Zambia. Now, it's difficult in Zambia, and you have to remember, this is a culture which has been in the thraldom to paganism for thousands of years. 
It isn't like in the West where we've had the, co- the gospel has permeated our culture and, and affected our values. They still need to learn those things. It's very, very slow going. There are two kinds of time. There's Western time and there's African time. Western time means we go to work at, you know, at 8 o'clock in the morning. African time means you might show up by 11. I mean, they haven't learned those things yet. And it makes it very frustrating for Western missionaries. Meanwhile, the Western uh, evangelistic, uh, you know, superstars who would never have gone to Zambia when it was a communist nation, but these are the blow-dried superstars with their fancy hairstyles and cars and things like that, are going in and they're making rice Christians because they will bring in hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of food and medicines and they will give them out if people will come to their, their conferences. And it's actually impeding the cause of Christian reconstruction because it's not helping the people to learn to be self-sufficient, self-governed, and to be responsible. And so that's a real impediment. I don't know if Monty was talking about that in the interview, but Peter said repeatedly that that's a, that's a problem. Hmm. I know in one country you mentioned the different conception of time. It uh, takes the members a long time to get to church. Uh, they come by ox cart. And they can straggle in from 9 till 11. But the services last three and four hours because they don't want to get up and leave. So if you were to have an hour-long service, they would just sit there and wait for more. They have a different conception of time. And uh, it can be frustrating to a Westerner but some of the missionaries change with time. I know that after spending most of his life in uh, the country I was speaking of, this uh, Englishman came back and was a bit shocked when people get got restless when he preached a three-hour sermon. <laughs> <laughs> He was so deeply imbued with that spirit that it just seemed the normal thing for him to do. The worst part of it was it was a day of record heat mm. in an area that had no air conditioning, conditioning because they had never needed it. And three hours in record heat was an ordeal. <laughs> when I was uh, <clears throat> ministering in... Uh, uh, KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa they assured me at the mission station that uh, the longer I preached the more the Zulus would like me mm-hmm. well let's just say that they loved me <laughs> <laughs> well I can think of what American uh, we should have shipped over to <laughs> Africa because he couldn't stop <laughs> I, Isaac Barrows was one of the great English uh, clergymen, Church of England, in the 1600s. He was a remarkable person. I'm rather partial to his writings because he wrote with a clarity and a beauty that uh, some of the others didn't have. His sentences were simple and direct, beautiful. But he was a long-winded preacher. 
and on one occasion, and he was held in great respect, on one occasion he preached in this cathedral. Morning prayer went on and on past noon and uh, dinner time. And the day was waning and the hour was approaching for evening prayer. And still Isaac Barrows was going strong. <laughs> so one of the men uh, went up and down the aisles with his hat, taking up a collection to pay the organist to start playing. <laughs> <laughs> because they'd crawled, one of the men had crawled to him and he said, oh no, I don't dare do anything like that to start mm -hmm. blasting out with an organ piece. They figured with enough money in the cap he would. <laughs> so they came to him with a cap full of money and whispered as they crawled up to him, play, and this is all yours. <laughs> so he blasted out with the organ. And Barrows looked startled and he looked up and saw that uh, it was nighttime. <laughs> the sun was not shining through. So he ended his sermon. But uh, that was Isaac Barrows. One of the great ornaments of the English church. Oddly enough, he was a master of concise, orderly writing. He marched to his point, and that was it. Brian, you have six covenant children. Yes. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about um, the necessity of a strong... Uh, father's leadership in the family and family worship and the necessity of godly families since you obviously have one. Well, there have been uh, a couple of books that have been very significant to me. And one was one that I required all of our deacons and elders to read who were studying, getting ready for ordination. And that was uh, Rush Dooney's Toward a Christian Marriage. And I hope that's still in print because oh, it's yes. a precious oh, yes. recently reprinted. Oh, great, mm -hmm. great. Uh, my copy was... was pretty old. I mean, it's... Yes. And that and the 1647 Directory of Family Worship published by the Church of Scotland. Now, it's very difficult to read uh, because it's 17th century English and very, very long, complicated sentences and there's, you know, very... Uh, it's get, you know, sub-clauses versus subordinate clauses versus, you know, independent clauses and things. But, however, the gist of it is that the Scottish Presbyterian Church thought that it was a disciplinable offense if a father neglected family worship. And that made an impression on me, even though very few people even know the director of family worship. It said to me why the Presbyterians were able to reform their nation, why the Presbyterians and Puritans were able to build this nation, and the strength of previous generations. So we've sort of incorporated both of those in, into our churches as the building block that it begins with the Father leading in worship. Rush set the model for us, and we've gotten encouraged from other places. Now, we don't do anything, it's not super spiritual, super fancy. It is simply, for example, in our family worship, we uh, sing a hymn. We, we sing in family worship the same hymns we'll sing on Sunday morning. That way, very, very young children can get a chance to get familiar with some of the words and the tune and things, so if they can't read, they can at least feel they're a part of it. We recite one of the creeds, usually the Apostles' Creed, 
we pray together, we read a, a small uh, section of scripture, the Father then explains that scripture and makes some useful of it to our family and our application. Then we pray for our church and for missionaries like Peter Hammond, uh, you know, doctors of the church such as Dr. Rush Dooney, uh, and that ends it. It takes about 15, 17 minutes. Uh, sometimes, though, I have to admit, it takes longer than that because the children, when they hear the stories and they hear the principles, they ask questions. And so sometimes what should only be 15 or 20 minutes sometimes becomes half an hour or 45 minutes. My children are such, and I, and I don't think my children are particularly special. I mean, I'm a, obviously they're special, they're my kids, but I don't think they're, they're great above normal. They are really offended if we miss family worship. And if, for example, I have an early morning meeting and so I miss family worship in the morning and I plan to do it in the evening and then there was an appointment came up or an important phone call, uh, the children will sit there at the table until daddy's ready. And if I say, hey kids, it's bedtime, dad, we can't, it's family worship. Well, okay, I've been a father long enough to know that maybe my kids are pulling my leg and they just don't want to go to bed. But I also think that uh, by consistent family worship, they know the importance of meeting with God. What we also do is that we catechize our children. Now, as a Presbyterian in the PCA, we put a lot of emphasis on the Schroeder Catechism. We think that's a wonderful uh, summary of good Bible doctrine. And for very, very, very young children, we use the Children's Catechism, which is an introduction to that. But the catechizal form of learning, questions and answers, review, repetition. Uh, Rush was talking earlier about how great the memories were of of uh, his father's generation because of the emphasis on, on rote memory. It is a fantastic way. It builds the principles into a child's young. And it becomes a good time of family fellowship. Dad's not there just as a disciplinarian. He's not the one who says, get out of my way, I want to watch TV, or grab me another beer, honey, or whatever the case may be. But Dad is seen as, as ministering the Word of God to his family. The consequence is uh, that the children grow up disciplined, they grow up respectful, they grow up submissive to the Word of God and, and internalizing it in their life. I think, by God's grace, I'm able to give my children what I lacked myself growing up, and that is to become self-governed. Does that answer well, your question? Yes. I've been in the Abshire home. They're very, very happy children. And they love the discipline. Uh, they... It gives them, actually, an advantage over anyone else, but they don't realize that, probably. But I recall when it was time for them to go to their rooms, Brian said, a ten hut. <laughs> they all lined up, about face, forward march, and off they went, very happily and proudly. And it was just like that instant discipline. They loved it. Brian, would you agree that there will not be reformation in the church until there's reformation in the family? I would say that's absolutely fundamental. That it, there, <clears throat> there cannot be one way or the other. There cannot be reformation unless there's self-government. If we are not self-governed under God's law, nothing else. And self-government begins in the family. It's, this is what Rush has told us for 40 years now. He's pointed out in so many different ways and different contexts and showed us the implications if we don't, if we don't follow through on it. Self-government is the beginning point. And the way that we begin self-government is by our parents instilling it in their children. Now, praise God for every covenant household, for every family that has been doing these things for years, for families such as the Rush Dooney's, which have almost an unbroken line for thousands of years on, on, on this kind of discipline and emphasis on the family and worship. 
but most Americans don't have it, and we haven't experienced it. Just like our brothers in Africa have to learn how to show up on time, uh, we have to learn how to be disciplined. Well, our time is about up. I'm going to ask all of you who are listening to be sure to remember, of course, Brian Abshire in your prayers and also Peter Hammond. You have an obligation there. Here's a man, Frontline Fellowship is his organization made up of military veterans. Yes who is on the front line of the grimmest battles today for the cause of Christ, who is under a death sentence by Marxist terrorists. He needs your prayers, and you will be derelict if you fail to pray for him. Please do, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening.